From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Move over, Silicon Valley. Colorado Springs is home to more and more tech businesses, including one that's set to triple its production of microchips, thanks to a federal grant. The grant will allow the company to noticeably speed up their timeline for producing the chips and to get moving on hiring the roughly 370 new jobs for it. Then, Nick Gratisar became the first mayor voters in Pueblo elected in more than 100 years. Now he's facing a runoff election to keep his seat from challenger Heather Graham. I want Pueblo to be on the map as being an attractable city where people want to bring their businesses um, and people want to bring their families. And the families that are here, their kids want to stay here and grow old. And I want to do it because I love this community. I love this job. And I think Pueblo has a bright future. And I want to do everything I can to uh, keep us going in the right direction. An informed and engaged community and nation grows stronger with access to credible and accurate reporting. NPR and CPR News teams are tireless in their efforts to deliver a full picture of the facts. Two organizations working together for a more informed public, one better equipped to recognize false claims and disinformation. Philanthropic gifts help CPR News and NPR do this important work. Explore ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The COVID-19 pandemic left the world scrambling for semiconductors, critical computer chips that pretty much are in everything from your phone to your car to your microwave. Now a facility in Colorado Springs is increasing its capacity to make more of those chips on American soil, saying it will triple its production of the computer chips. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce is here to talk about the significance of this. Hi, Dan. Hello, Chandra. You know, I'll go ahead and start by saying the company's name is Microchip. I just thought I'd lay that out because I found it can be a little confusing in talking about more microchip chips from Microchip. So Microchip is the business name. Got it. And the reason we're talking about this now is uh, earlier this month, the U.S. Commerce Department announced the Springs Microchip Facility is set to receive a $90 million grant from the Chips and Science Act. And Congress passed this in 2022? Right. And it's the Biden administration's plan to support specifically domestic production of semiconductors. Mm. And during the pandemic, there were mass shortage of these semiconductors. Yeah, supply chain issues all over the world with them. And the White House realized we were far too over-reliant on foreign-made chips. Here's Senator John Hickenlooper at an event at the microchip plant. Making sure that we can onshore them, it moves us forward in what is continuing to be a global competition. So we got to make more here. The CHIPS Act is the big federal package to do that, and the $90 million grant to the Springs Microchip Facility is the largest CHIPS grant so far awarded to one location. And so Microchip will use the grant toward tripling its domestic semiconductor production. Is $90 million enough to do that? Oh, no. Uh, no way. Uh, that $90 million, it rolls into a nearly billion-dollar with a B, mm. billion-dollar renovation and modernization project at the Springs microchip location. They also got, uh, as an aside, they got $47 million in state and local tax incentives as well for this. Still, uh, what microchip executives say is the grant will allow the company to noticeably speed up their timeline for producing the chips and to get moving on hiring the roughly 370 new jobs for it. So you went to an event at Microchip announcing the grant. Yeah, Governor Polis was there, Senator Hickenlooper, as we said. Representative Doug Lamborn was there touting it. And interesting in his case, because the Republican voted against the CHIPS Act. Here's Lamborn. I absolutely agree with the goals of the CHIPS Act. Our domestic semiconductor industry needs to be able to take on the rest of the world. And we need to be able to do better than China and Russia. I just happen to believe that private funding works better than government funding. However, now that the act has taken effect and has become law, let's make the most of it. 
And Dan, this is not the only recent piece of positive tech business news out of Colorado Springs. No, Chandra, it's not. Springs has been rolling in it lately as far as tech, cybersecurity, aerospace jobs. Uh, solar company Meyer Berger, defense space contractor Bocor, and electronic materials manufacturer Integris each have announced hundreds of local job openings in less than the last 18 months. Hundreds of millions of dollars of investment, and that's just part of the list. Some of that investment comes on the heels of Peterson Space Force Base here being named the permanent home of U.S. Space Command last summer. Here's Colorado Springs Mayor Yemi Mobilade. Colorado Springs continues its long and proud legacy of not just being known as Olympic City USA, but also a Silicon Mountain. A Silicon Mountain. Take that, Silicon Valley. Chandra, we'll just... <laughs> We'll have to see if that new Colorado Springs tagline catches on. Wow. Fascinating. Thanks, Dan. Of course, Chandra. Anytime. That was CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce speaking with us about Microchip, a facility in Colorado Springs that has announced plans to increase its capacity to make more microchips in America, saying it will triple its production of the computer chips. The semiconductors are pretty much in everything from your phone to your car to your microwave. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. Home solar can help fight climate change, but that doesn't mean you should believe an ad like this one. Would you take a Tesla Powerwall and brand new solar panels at no cost? Then you need to watch this before this program is gone for good. The truth behind those social media solar ads many Coloradans are seeing on the latest episode of Colorado Wonders at CPR.org. With support from the Colorado Health Foundation. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. It's one week until Election Day in Pueblo, when voters will get to decide who will lead their city. Incumbent Mayor Nick Radisar faces a runoff challenge from City Council President Heather Graham. KRCC's Jess Hazel spoke with both candidates. First, we'll hear from Graham sharing how she would address public safety, housing, and her vision for the future. As I've worked through city government for the last two years, um, I find it a challenge to get things uh, moving along in the city. And I think it's, you know, because we have the strong form of the strong mayor form of government, and there's not a whole lot of collaboration between the city council um, and the mayor's office as it stands right now. So hoping to uh, bring that collaboration, work together with the seven other people on council, and really get Pueblo moving in the right direction. A lot of Puebloans are concerned about public safety. What do you see as the biggest issues leading to crime, and how would you address them? Our part one crimes, which are like arson, rape, burglary, homicide, are actually down 12%. But I find it that people in Pueblo are really concerned about the petty crime, car theft, um, their businesses being broken into, property damage. You have to combat it with more officers on the ground. I think the way that you hire more police officers is expedite the process. I think that there's a lot of things that we can do to um, try to combat crime. I just don't think any of it's being done right now. So during your time on city council, you introduced an ordinance that would restrict people from sitting or laying down in the downtown area during business hours. Ultimately, that failed to pass. And critics say that those kind of laws target the homeless population and can make their situation worse. Would you seek to use similar strategies to address homelessness as mayor? We don't want to just tell people that you're fine laying in the middle of the road or road sidewalk. We don't want to say that Pueblo as a society is okay with that. Um, we want to say build yourself up and let us help you do so. But I think a lot of times you have to have some rules um, in place to allow that to be done. What do you think is the root cause of homelessness in Pueblo and how would you seek to address that? The, the drug issue is the root problem. I think um, it's like what came first, drug addiction or mental health? Um, and so when you have two really powerful issues like that taking over um, the minds of um, the unhoused people, it's a challenge. 
What is your sense of the housing market in Pueblo and what role should local government play when it comes to ensuring folks have affordable housing? You know, one idea that I've had is to landlords that have apartment buildings um, or even properties is to give them, um, you know, a property tax rebate incentive if they keep it affordable. Um, We can also use some of the properties that we have, that the city has, and that we continue to pay um, just to, you know, abandoned properties essentially or properties not in use. Um, We can try to um, release these to developers who will put affordable housing in for a very low cost so that it keeps their costs low because I think that's what it comes down to is with inflation and cost of products, it's very hard to build build affordable housing unless it's subsidized in some matter. And those are some ways that the city could subsidize. Annual salary in Pueblo falls below Colorado Springs and the statewide average, but yearly wages are higher than other places in southern Colorado. How should the mayor's office help to attract more and better paying jobs? So we we, we try to do this now. Um, you know, we have PEDCO. It's a board I sit on. It's a board the mayor sits on. And we, we try to bring new, best, new businesses to Pueblo with good paying jobs. And I think that if you start promoting Pueblo with a positive narrative, um, I think that we can see a change. Um, we have some big businesses who are looking at uh, to to bring shop to Pueblo. We have about $50 million in our Petco tax right now, which is how we how we incentivize these businesses to come to Pueblo. And I think that we also might need to look at changing, tweaking that tax to be able to expand businesses that are already in Pueblo. Is there anything else you think our listeners should know about you as a candidate that I might have missed? I think uh, people are... Um, hesitant with my experience, um, right, because I've been on city council for two years. That's not a whole lot in time in city government. And I think that they're also hesitant with my age. I'll be 36 this year. But I think that when we talk about what a vision for Pueblo is, um, I can have a vision 30 years out because um, I'll have time to grow. KRCC's Jess Hazel speaking with Heather Graham, who is running for mayor of Pueblo. Now let's hear from her opponent, incumbent Nick Gratisar. He is the first mayor voters in Pueblo elected in more than 100 years and the first to hold the position after the city switched from a city manager form of government to a strong mayor. I want to do it because I love this community. I love this job and I think Pueblo has a bright future and I want to do everything I can to uh, keep us going in the right direction. A lot of Puebloans are concerned about public safety right now. What do you see as the biggest issues leading to crime and how would you address them? Well, I think obviously one of the problems we're facing here in Pueblo is the shortage of police officers. So we're working on ways to, number one, uh, incentivize new police officers to come to work here. We're not just counting on getting more police officers though. We're trying to be smarter about the way we police. Uh, So we've recently instituted with Health Solutions an SOS program, which sends a licensed mental health professional, an EMT, and a peer to some of the calls that ordinarily we'd have to send a police officer to. They need somebody to intervene on a mental health issue. Uh, Part one crimes, the most serious crimes, are actually down in Pueblo, about 12%. We're going in the right direction, but we still have a lot of work to do. City Council considered adopting an ordinance to restrict people from sitting or laying in the downtown area during business hours. Ultimately, that effort failed to pass, and critics say these kinds of laws target the homeless population and can actually make their situation worse. Had this ordinance reached your desk, would you have supported it? Um... Probably not. I don't think they're creating nearly as many problems as some candidates would like to have you believe, that, you know, everything's going to hell in a handbasket and things are out of control. It's, it's a problem. We're continuing to work on that problem. But um, it, passing laws and criminalizing homelessness doesn't make much sense to me. What do you see as the root cause of homelessness in Pueblo, and how would you plan to address that? The number one condition afflicted by the homeless in the city of Pueblo is a mental health disorder. 
that far exceeds alcoholism or drug abuse. It's a mental health disorder. So one of the things we have to do is get much more aggressive in terms of our outreach to those mentally ill homeless people that are in the city of Pueblo. It's always been the law and is still the law that if you're mentally ill and as a result of that mental illness, you're dangerous to yourself or other people, or you're unable to take care of your basic personal needs like clothing, food, shelter, um, you can be required to get mental health treatment. The problem we have is we don't have anywhere to put them. And if we did, we'd see a reduction in homeless because with modern psychiatric medications, uh, it would put these, these people back in touch with reality. So we have to be more aggressive in terms of outreach services. So the average annual salary in Pueblo falls below the average in Colorado Springs and statewide, but it is higher than other places in southern Colorado. How should the mayor's office help to attract more and better paying jobs? One of the ways I think is by developing relationships with our existing companies, which I've certainly done with Everaz Steel and with CS Wind. Um, Petco is our economic development recruiter. They're always on the lookout for new companies that are looking for a place to come. Uh, my goal as the mayor was and is to try to create an economy here where every young person who wants to remain in Pueblo is able to find a job or career that will allow them to support their family and that nobody should have to leave Pueblo in order to make a living. We've created over a thousand jobs in the last uh, three years, uh, including 850 at CS Wind, and I think you'll see many more coming in uh, a few years as well. What is your sense of the housing market here in Pueblo, and what role should local government play when it comes to ensuring folks have affordable housing? The housing market is tight in Pueblo. We're short. I mean, we had a study done in 2021, the city and the county, that showed that we'd be 9,500 housing units short um, in the next 10 years. So we're working with developers, number one. I think that's critical. We're working with property owners here to try to help them uh, develop their property uh, into uh, housing units. We've seen more subdivision requests and applications in the last three years than we have in decades. So uh, things are going in the right direction, but those kind of things take time. Is there anything else you think it's important for our listeners to understand about you as a candidate? There'll be a clear choice here in this election between somebody who has been the mayor, has the experience, and knows how city government operates, know how the system works, versus somebody that doesn't. KRCC's Jess Hazel speaking with Nick Radisar, who is running for re-election as mayor of Pueblo. Earlier, we heard from his challenger in the runoff, City Council President Heather Graham. Election day is one week from today, Tuesday, January 23rd. Voters may mail in or drop off ballots for this election, but all ballots must be delivered to the Pueblo City Clerk's Office by 7 p.m. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The political blame games and bickering can be exhausting. But if you tune out, you can miss hearing about the powerful ways our elected representatives can shape our lives. I'm CPR Washington reporter Caitlin Kim. My job is to make sure you know about the important things Colorado's members of Congress do, the policies they advocate, the ones they oppose, and what it all means for you. Follow all our government reporting at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Art often conveys the emotion and creativity of the person who created it. Sometimes a painting represents an entire community. Off the Walls is the new podcast from CPR and Denverite about the people and the stories behind Denver street art. In this episode, hosts Emily Williams and Kibway Cooper tell us about how a group of often overlooked artists took action to change that. Alexandria Pangburn loves working with spray paint. The speed of it is really nice. Spray paint has helped me kind of move through a piece at like a faster pace and so I get a little bit more into it and get stoked to, to finish it. She's spray painting the last details, some flowers, onto a new mural just off of a busy stretch of East Colfax. Originally my flowers weren't going this high, but I put in some more flowers so I'm just kind of working from pulling just an extra layer up. Alex really cares about making sure other women in Denver have the opportunity to do this. 
to be part of filling this city with beautiful street art. Alex is the executive director of Babe Walls, a mural festival for all female and non-binary artists. Alex had noticed a disparity in Denver's street art scene. You know, it was mostly male-dominated and there weren't a lot of women working. And she wasn't alone in noticing that. Other local artists, who are also core members of this Babe Walls community, said they wanted to see more women succeed in this space too. Only certain people were getting jobs and it just, it seemed like there were closed doors on a lot of different artists. And that just seemed really ridiculous. You know, why not, I guess? Why not have women be part of that environment as well? There's so many talented artists. So to create change, this group of artists created Babe Walls. Over the past few years, Babe Walls has held festivals and created a community of women and non-binary artists. But how did they do it? And how has Babe Walls changed Denver's street art scene? We'll hear more from Alex later, but first, I met up with Grow Love, an artist who loves to paint big, bold murals, and who isn't afraid to speak her mind. She's one of the founding artists of Babe Walls. Grow Love is the artist moniker she gave herself. Her studio space in Westminster is small and full of color. On one wall, you can see all of these layers of outlines of rectangles. It's the spray paint left over around the edges of canvases. It looks like a bit of a chaotic, abstract mural. I love what that wall looks like. I always love how it's just like a unique buildup of paint. What does that wall say right now? My mom has worked with me a lot. So we had a meeting here a couple weeks ago and we came up with this quote is, where is the sprinkled donut? We were at a bus station (laughs) and we saw this perfect purple sprinkled donut on the ground. Like it hadn't been touched. It was just so random. And that's kind of what we're trying to find that is like, where, where is this randomness in life where you can find the beauty in life through art? Painting has always been what Grolove has been drawn to. She remembers getting her very first set of paints at eight years old. We had a neighbor who had passed away and there was an estate sale. I went over there and it turns out the person who lived there was a painter. And their whole basement was filled with paintbrushes and old canvases and paint. And so I bought a bunch of old paint and I was going to teach myself how to oil paint, which is for an eight-year-old is a little crazy, but I've always been like that. I've always, whenever I wanted to achieve something or learn something, I set out and I did it. Grolove grew up in Wheat Ridge and Golden, and she got her art degree at the University of Denver. She saw herself as an artist, but doing art professionally, full-time, wasn't really an option for her as a young adult. I kind of had a tumultuous young adulthood where I became a mother very early and struggled with identifying as an artist. And then uh, and I actually was a labor doula for five years. I worked at a bank. I worked in restaurants. I worked retail. I was doing everything that I could to support my family. While doing all of these different jobs, Grolove kept making art, but on the side. Then, on a trip to Miami for a healthcare workshop, Grolove had a truly life-changing moment that totally changed the way she thought about her art. My friend who lived down there was like, hey, I know you're an artist. It just so happened to be Art Basel down there, which is the biggest art fair in the world. I had no idea what that was. I had never heard of it. And she took me into the Wynwood Arts District, which is 20 square blocks of murals, like world-class murals. And I literally, I took a step into this area and I just, I was like, that's it. I really felt like uh, the blindfold came off of my face and I was like, this is it. This is all I want to do. I want to paint this. I want to paint this big. I I think it was literally like, I will die if I don't do this. Grolup decided she didn't just want to do this. She had to do this. And to make that happen, to become a full-time mural artist, she'd have to fully commit to it without fear. Nobody's going to do this for me. Like, I am out here alone. 
And I kind of had to have that mentality about it to really go full force into it because support or no support, I was going to do it. I knew that if I wanted to learn something, I would have to stop using the tools that I had used before. So I told myself for one year, I'm going to put all my paintbrushes and everything that I used to paint before, lock them away. And everything that I was doing before, try to do it with spray paint. And so that's how I learned. I was working and learning at the same time, and I still am learning. I, I think and that's why I love this medium so much is because it just continues to impress me with its capacity to make a visual mark. I'm obsessed. In 2017, Grolov got her first chance to paint for Crush Walls. Crush Walls was a mural festival in Denver's River North or Rhino Arts District. It started in 2010 and is really how that neighborhood became a hot spot for street art. At that time, it was the biggest stage in Denver for a muralist to be on and one of the biggest stages for any muralist from anywhere to be on. These were coveted spots for creating new street art. Through a friend, Grolov had gotten space to paint. I wasn't officially on the roster for that, but I knew somebody who knew somebody, you know, and so I got that one. And that really was exciting and fun. And But that was, you know, that was the beginning of recognizing what I didn't want to be a part of, too. The more Grolov got into the local street art scene, the more concerned she had with how it was operating. Some people, like Grolov, were worried about how art made for events like Crush could contribute to the gentrification of those neighborhoods. And one of the biggest issues Grolov saw was what felt to her like a culture of exclusivity and gatekeeping, where only certain people got most of the opportunities. If there were 20 spots on the roster, 15 to 18 of those would go to the same people. Three spots would go to up-and-coming artists or visiting artists or something like that. And it just seemed like they would just switch out who the female or the black artist or the brown artist was going to be. That's what it felt like. And, and it was happening again and again and again with, with festivals or gallery shows or, you know, you name it. And it was just like, this is so lame. Like, there's so many more dope artists out here. Like, it, it just felt like the boys club. And it was like, yeah, you guys are great, but there are other people in this city who are amazing. And it just, it just felt like they were guaranteed work no matter what. And us out over here were like, maybe if we were lucky, just, just didn't seem equitable. So I started talking to other female artists and non-binary folks, and they were saying the same thing, that they felt the same way about how things were going. And um, it just felt, it just felt bad communicating with each other it just started some steam started building up and I'm like you know what we have the capacity to do our own thing it was around that time Grolove met Alex Pangburn the muralist who would eventually become the head of Babe Walls Alex grew up in Kentucky and had been living in Ohio before she moved to Denver in 2017 she says she had never seen so much street art in one place, and she knew immediately she wanted to immerse herself in the artist community here. So she got a job at the Rhino Art District's retail gallery. Being there in that spot, it really helped me on a fast track to connect with the artist community in Denver because I was dealing with artists directly. As Alex was taking in all of this, meeting artists, going to galleries, and getting to know this community— she noticed something, the same thing that Grolove had been noticing. You know, it was mostly male-dominated and there weren't a lot of women working. It was infuriating to me that there would be like one female artist and she wasn't even from the area. And just knowing like how much talent was here in Denver, it was really irritating to me that there was no highlight on the talent, on the local talent. So I'd just kind of been thinking about how cool would it be if there was just a spot for women to be able to paint and how we could just, you know, get together and just do it on our own. If nobody else was going to give us an opportunity, well, then we would just do it by ourselves. 
Right around the time that Alex got this idea, she had the opportunity to hire an artist for a job in Rhino, and she reached out to Grow Love to do it. I was curating a project for a barber shop on Brighton Boulevard, and they had this huge transformer box that they wanted to be rotated every few months with artists. And I remember I put Grow Love on it, and I had seen her around and like wanted to chat with her, but I was like pretty intimidated by her because I just thought that she was the coolest. And so I put her on that project because I thought she'd be a great fit. And then also it'd be an opportunity for me to kind of be able to talk to her. So I knew she was working that day and went up to her and was like, hey, I have this idea. You know, I'd really love for you to be a part if you'd be interested. Grow Love was all in. And that conversation marked the start of something. I think that was one of the breaking points and one of the seeds for sure for Babe Walls. They started assembling a core team of artists, and Alex got to work figuring out when and how they could pull off this vision. Originally, the plan was to host a mural festival, which they'd call Babe Walls, and fill the roster with all women and non-binary artists. It would be a one-time event that would hopefully make a statement and potentially create some ripples of change for other festivals. But to make Babe Walls happen, there was a lot they needed to figure out. Alex connected with the owner of the Acoma House, a boutique arts hotel in Denver, about a possible location for the festival. And just in, you know, discussion had kind of mentioned how I wanted to do this festival and it was celebrating, you know, women and non-binary artists. And she was like, oh, we actually have a bunch of properties up in Westminster. They're all together. Some of the walls are really great. Literally the next day, she was like, here are the codes to some of the buildings. <laughs> like, let's meet up there. I'll show you the space. We went up to Westminster and she showed me the buildings and I kind of got a lay for the land and was like, oh man, we could like really pull this off. Things were starting to fall into place. In April of 2020, they started a fundraiser on Kickstarter to raise the money they'd need to hold the festival. On the page, they wrote about what Babe Walls would be. We are here to celebrate women in their art and what we can do when we come together to create, they wrote. They were nervous about whether or not they'd get the support they needed to pull it off. A global pandemic had just started, but they reached and exceeded their goal. And they took it as a sign that they had an idea other people believed in. And I'm pretty sure we all cried whenever we like were able to meet our Kickstarter goal. We had such a boost of self-esteem from all the support that we had gotten that people were ready for it. We went ahead and did it. I just think it is so beautiful the way these ladies are able to come together and create something that's very unique and intentional. I keep thinking back to that moment that Alex and Grow Love met and that moment of getting an idea and, and looking back and saying, oh, that was, that was a moment that really started something. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then to realize, listen, we don't have to wait in line. Let's just do our own thing. So what happened when they held the first Babe Walls Festival? And what was it like for an artist who painted her very first mural there? That's after a break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. One of the country's first rodeos took place in 1869 in Deer Trail, Colorado. Today, top rodeo prizes can be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Back then, the winner won a new set of clothes. To start every year, cowboys and girls compete at the National Western Stock Show in Denver. Later in the year, weekly competitions in Steamboat Springs and annual events like the Pikes Peak or Bust Rodeo, Cattlemen's Days in Gunnison, and the Greeley Stampede, which was first called the Spud Rodeo in tribute to the potato crops around town. And celebrating all things rodeo all year round is the Pro Rodeo Hall of Fame in Colorado Springs, for the people and animals who've made their marks in arenas around the country, like the bucking bull who threw almost every rider who tried him before retirement in 1995. His name was Bodacious. 
a Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Coble and Company. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. Let's get back to Off the Walls, the new podcast from CPR and Denverite about the stories and the people behind the city's street art. Here again is host Emily Williams. To assemble their team of artists for the first Babe Walls, the core group of founding members each invited other artists to paint with them. One of the women who got that invitation was Danielle Seawalker. I met up with Danielle at her studio in Rhino. She'd been spray painting just before, so the paint smell lingered in the air a little as she showed me around the space. Down this way is like a lot of my finished art pieces or pieces that are getting ready to go on an exhibition, and including my teepee, my teepee poles, and some other kinds of like prints and things like that. Danielle is a citizen of the Standing Rock tribe in North Dakota, where she grew up. And her identity as an indigenous woman is an important part of her art. There's a, um, a painting that I had done earlier this year, and it's called Land Hostage. And it's a visual of sort of a man that was inspired by an old photo that I had seen of a prisoner, a Native American prisoner. The braids are made of a collage of government-issued checks that I receive for land that I have inherited through my dad um, back on the reservation. And these checks are also very insulting. Sometimes they're $4.25 or $6.17. So I never cash them, and I often, I just collect them and I embed them in a lot of my artwork. One of the reasons Danielle moved to Denver was to be part of the art community here. She loved walking around and seeing the vibrant murals and street art. It was inspiring. But when it came to these massive paintings, Danielle thought that's all she would do. Admire them. I never, ever thought I would be one to like do that because I had zero idea how to execute it. Painting something on such a large scale was mind boggling to me. I started to meet a lot of people in the art community. And a friend of mine introduced me to another artist, Romel, who's also part of the Bay Balls team. And we were just sort of, you know, learning more about each other's art and who we were. And then she's like, have you ever done a mural? I said, no. And she, she, then she's like, well, would you be interested in maybe doing one? And I, I was, I kind of just, I didn't know what to say. I was like, uh, maybe, I don't know. And then she kind of explained, you know, Babe Walls and the intent behind that. And then, you know, 2020 was such a bizarre year that I, at that point, I'm like, you know what, why not? Let me just learn. Let me try it. They had their funding, they had their location, and they had their artists. And then it happened. On a hot day in August, about 25 artists came together and got to work on a dozen walls spread out along a few blocks in a residential area of Westminster. First-time muralist Danielle Seawalker wasn't just working on a wall. She and her collaborator, Ramel, painted an entire house. Because this was a new kind of festival, celebrating women and non-binary artists, Danielle wanted to capture the female spirit in their mural. And she wanted to highlight an issue that's important to her. In my culture as a Native woman, I do a lot of activism as well. And one of those things is um, bringing awareness to the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls um, crisis that's been going on for a long time. On each side of the wall, there's different representation of women. And then along, as you kind of wrap around the wall, it's almost like the house is wearing a ribbon skirt, which a lot of Native women wear um, to ceremony and important events, etc. And then a big giant red handprint on the front, which is the symbol that people know for this particular crisis. Danielle found herself completely consumed by the mural making process. I was just painting nonstop. And I remember Romel coming up to me saying, Danielle, like you need to take breaks. Because I literally was like from sun up to sundown, just pressed up against that wall painting nonstop. And like literally, it's like I didn't have to use the restroom. I was not thirsty. I didn't wasn't hungry. It was just like this, I don't know, this surge of energy and like uh, that just I just wanted to, it was so exhilarating and fun and I loved it. It was an amazing experience and I've been super addicted to painting on walls ever since. For Alex and Growlove, the best thing about that day was just that they had pulled this off. That first day of Babe Walls, it was like really life-changing. And I think to be able to see that many women and non-binary artists come together and 
painting and there was a huge sense of community. And then of course, all the people that had supported us. I think there was a little over 2,500 people that showed up over the course of two days. It really felt like we had achieved something great because we were the artists who were kind of used and then thrown out in a way. That's what it kind of felt like. Or, or we, were, we were accepted as long as we behaved ourselves. And so the fact that we were like, okay, we don't want to be a part of that. We don't want to be treated like that. We're going to do our own thing. And we actually pulled it off. I mean, all of us walking around, seeing each other paint. I mean, we were, our hearts were so full. We were literally, it was like the time of our lives. And um, it felt like a sisterhood that we could only have dreamed of. It literally felt like we were on cloud nine. It was the best thing that could have ever happened. But after that emotional high of the start of the festival, something happened that threw Grow Love into a completely different state of mind. There was one person who Grow Love did not expect to see at Babe Walls, Robin Monroe. Robin Monroe is the founder of Crush Walls, that mural festival that was the biggest event of the year for muralists in Denver. And because of that, he's also one of the most influential people in the city's street art scene. Grolove had met Monroe at the first crush walls she painted at in 2017. She says they started to date and that he assaulted her. She'd told that to other female muralists in the community. She said she felt like she wanted them to know for their safety. So she did not expect him to be there at Babe Walls. My collaborator at that point, she was trying to learn a technique with spray paint and ended up inviting him to spray our wall that we were all working on together when she knew what happened to me. And I literally lost my mind. Somebody had come up to me and warned me, just so you know, he's over there. And I just immediately left. We still had one more day to paint and I could barely bring myself to come back. Um, but I did. And my friend apologized for what she did. It was like complete polar opposites of where I was at. Like we did this, you know, we did this dream come true. And then here comes literally a nightmare. I was like, that's it. It, it broke me. I was like, I'm going full public with this. In September of 2020, Grolove shared a post on Instagram that laid out her allegations against Monroe. That post had ripple effects throughout the entire local art scene. The Rhino Arts District put out a statement saying it would investigate the allegations against Monroe. Then that December, the Arts District announced it had reached a mutual agreement to cut ties with Monroe and his organization, Crush Walls. That announcement didn't mention the allegations. That February, Denverite published a detailed report that included an interview with Grolove and with another woman who said he'd sexually assaulted her. We reached out to Monroe for this podcast, and he said that all of this was investigated and that from that investigation, it was, quote, readily apparent that the allegations against me are demonstrably false. He says Rhino settled out of court, returned the rights to crush to him, and removed a statement they made about his termination. We reached out to the Rhino Arts District, but they declined to say anything. In 2021, there was no Crush Walls Festival. There hasn't been one since. Grolove stands behind what she shared. And she said that choosing to share her story was not easy. You basically have to welcome whatever will come. And you don't know. Because in the past, I could have lost everything. People lost respect for me. I lost my reputation in ways. And it's like, you don't understand how people really, truly are programmed to dismiss women and the violence that happens to them. I feel safer now than I've ever felt. I've worked through a lot of my trauma. Basically, you know, I just want people to feel safe. I want to feel safe, and I want people to feel safe. 
As all of this unfolded, Babe Walls was looking to the future, to a second festival. Alex had thought Babe Walls was going to be a one-time thing, but after the success of their first year, it was clear to her that they should keep this going. The community they'd started to build was growing, and their idea was resonating with artists well outside of Colorado. We opened up applications to the public for 2021, and we had 400 applications come through. You know, at that point, there was a bigger shift from it being, you know, strictly local to we need to expand our reach and bring in people from out of state to be able to be a part of this so that we can make connections with other cities, you know, be able to support communities, not just in the Colorado area, but nationally. For the second Babe Walls, they were invited by the city of Arvada to paint along a stretch of the Ralston Creek Trail. Just like that first festival, the energy was high when all the Babe Walls artists convened there for four days that July. Danielle was back to paint another mural. And it was really cool because we were literally like right next to each other. Just it was just this we were all very close to one another. And it was very much this like festival feeling where people and spectators and folks that wanted to come watch us paint could just, you know, go to one spot and see all this art happening at once. So that was just so, so great. Grow Love and Alex painted murals, too. Almost all of Alex's paintings feature animals. And the one she painted for that Bay Walls is part of a distinct memory for her. The very first animal that I saw when I drove into the state of Colorado was a pronghorn. And I literally thought it was an antelope that had gotten loose from a zoo because <laughs> I had never seen one before. And Grow Love worked with the artist Mar Williams to paint a dreamy landscape. I had gotten back from New Mexico. When I was there, there was these incredible cicadas. I'd never seen them up close like this before. But she ended up painting these like beautiful cicadas, like coming out of this kind of dream landscape. And then there was like this character riding the cicadas. And so it was like this super long mural that was like a scene that went from one thing to another. It was really cool. There was no Babe Walls 2023, but the festival will be back in 2024. In the meantime, Alex, Danielle, and Grow Love have all been busy painting new murals. Danielle had never painted a mural before Babe Walls, but after that first one, she was hooked. For her, it became a springboard, and she's gone on to amass an impressive collection of murals just in the few years since that first Babe Walls. So 2020 to 2022, I had done 20 murals. And now we're into 2023, and I've probably done about five to seven more. And I have two more on deck to do. So I'm almost at 30 murals in three years. It's crazy, I know. <laughs> Looking back on the past few years, Alex and Grolove say they feel like their community is in a good place. So much has changed. It's taken like a total 180. It's been like really cool to see that shift. Now we're in this really cool period of growth. I think a lot of other festivals took into account what was happening and made sure that they're doing their due diligence and folding in the equitable inclusivity things and really standing by that, not just saying it, but actually standing by that and doing the work that it takes to say that that's what you're doing. That was another beautiful thing that came from this. Kibwe and I visited the Ralston Creek Trail and Arvada together, so I could show him some of the Bay Walls murals. Okay, this is just the start of it. You can see it goes way, oh, wow. way down there. Wow. All right, so this is like a string of murals right here. Oh yeah, and that's the, all of these are connected along this path, and also there are bikers coming by all the time, so. We're trying to get out of their way. And there's, these murals are beautiful, very colorful. This one we're looking at right now, it looks like a jellyfish. It's There's pink and orange and purple, and there's some blacks in this. It's like outer space and under the ocean at the same time. Yes. And like these psychedelic mushrooms over there, too. <laughs> That's what they look like. Oh. Here come the bikes. <laughs> This is the one that Grow Love painted. Remember she talked about the cicadas? Yeah. 
That's a cicada? That's one of the cicadas? Yeah, yeah. Okay. What do you think, looking at all of these murals here? I really love um, the idea of refusing to accept what's unacceptable. These ladies refuse to accept the problematic environment in which they were given to perform their art. And rather than accepting that, they took matters into their own hands. They created something that's sustainable, that elevates their talent, that empowers them, and that also creates beautiful, important, and whimsical art. I wonder how many people do bike or run down this path. I wonder if they know that this was the, the product of these women coming together and wanting a, wanting a space to be together and to celebrate each other and to teach each other and to learn from each other and make beautiful art. I mean, everyone can see the beautiful art, but I'd love if everyone who came by also knew that beautiful intention that went into it. That's really good. You can find the Bay Walls 2021 murals on the Ralston Creek Trail in Arvada, where Ralston Road meets Lamar Street. You can find photos of the murals on CPR.org. There's a link in the show notes. Off the Walls, the podcast by CPR and Denverite, hosted by Emily Williams and Kipway Cooper. Catch this episode and all of the first season at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.